Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BIOREPORT. That's deepdive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E dot com forward slash podcast. And the code is BIOREPORT, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The biopharmaceutical industry has long struggled with R&D productivity. Longtime industry strategic consultant Mike Rea, founder and CEO of Idea Pharma, thinks he's hit on a possible solution. Taking a cue from the tech industry, Rhea in May announced the launch of Protodyme, which he describes as a contract skunkworks company. The approach is intended to allow a multidisciplinary team work with autonomy to take its clients' early-stage assets and explore multiple development options at once with the intent of de-risking innovation while saving time and money. We spoke to Ria about the industry's challenge with R&D productivity, the benefits Protodyme Skunk Works approach could provide, and how it will work with industry. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. We're going to talk about biopharmaceutical R&D productivity, challenges with that, and a new company you've launched called Protodyme to bring an approach that's been successful within the tech industry to address this challenge. I, I think as long as I've been covering this industry, there have been conserves about declining R&D productivity. We, we've seen the emergence of new technologies that are supposed to improve that. We've certainly seen therapeutic modalities that should allow more efficient drug development. Where are we in terms of R&D productivity today, and how big a problem does it remain for the industry? Well, it's, I think it's the big problem, um, but I think you have to quantify that. And I think that there's been lots of reports that suggest that we've seen year-on-year you know, -year declines in the output of the pipelines uh, for the amount of money spent. So, you know, that's probably the only measure of productivity that matters, right? And I think, uh, you know, if, if you'll allow me a kind of uh, you know, football soccer analogy, 
I remember looking at the uh, the Brazil Germany uh, World Cup final a little while ago, and if you looked at the metrics, you know Brazil did pretty well. You know they uh, they outshot. You know they got more shots on target. They got more shots in general. You know they had more possession, but they failed to put the ball in the back of the net, and Germany managed to do it seven times. Um, and I think that's one of the issues that we have with the farmer industry, which is we're measuring stuff that doesn't matter. We're measuring attrition in phase one. We're measuring failure rates in phase two. Um, but the thing that matters, getting the ball in the back of the net, is uh, is is in decline, uh, despite the increase in spend. So, you know, you think this, you know, those curves can't carry on the way that they're going on. So, uh, I, I'd say it's one of the big issues. Uh, but we need to be clear what we mean by productivity. And not a bad analogy for uh, an industry that likes to boast about shots on goal. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and say, but you know, they are taking more shots. Uh, they're just not, if, you know, what you would do if you're on a, on on the football field is that, that you would be questioning your your technique, you'd be questioning your approach, uh, and maybe questioning whether that's the right way to be doing it. Well, listeners may know you as CEO of Idea Pharma, a strategic mm-hmm. consulting firm. You've spent a lot of time in that role exploring innovation within pharma, biopharmaceutical companies. Yeah. I, I suspect exploring decision making in these organizations as well as dysfunction. As you think about the problems of R&D productivity, why do you think it's been such a persistent problem for this industry? Um, so I think there'd be a few contributors to that. Um, you know, And if people do know us, it's because of the Pharmaceutical Innovation Index, which you know, began well, 11 years ago with a, with a simple question that we asked ourselves internally, which is, if you gave the same asset to two different companies, would they would they be equally successful? You know, would it end up in the same place? Um, and most people knew the answer was no, but most people didn't know why. Uh, so, um, so we began to, to to look for those analogs, and actually, it turns out there's a lot of that happening. A lot of people have the same drug at the same time, and uh, and therefore, it's not the molecule that makes the difference. It's the people, it's the organizations, uh, and this kind of creation of value from, from, from the pipeline. Um, you know, we weren't looking for why, you know, some companies are good at it and some companies are bad and, uh, um, or sorry, why some companies are better than others. I wouldn't say anyone's bad at it. Um, but, um, you know, I think a lot of it, uh, in our estimation came down to the early stage decisions, you know, the, uh, I'd call it kind of risk mitigating behavior that the industry has adopted versus the opportunity seeking behavior that, uh, you know, many in the tech world would, would, would recognize. Um, and then you think, well, why is that? And actually you look at the statistics, a lot of companies are defending old products, you know, uh, launched 10, 15, 20 years ago, in some cases, which are still generating huge revenues. Well, if that's the kind of company that you want to be, then you behave that way. If your goal is to launch more products, uh, then that's the way that you'll behave. So, But I think we've got a lot of people that have grown up in our industry uh, who've learned the former, who've learned how to you know, launch big and then follow success that way, uh, and have learned a lot less about how to, uh, you know, how to optimize pipelines and portfolios. People who know the tech industry may be familiar with the term skunk works. But before we talk about Protodyme, can you explain what a skunk works project is and how a skunk works operation goes about its chores? Yeah, yeah. I mean, tech is uh, tech's picked it up, but it began with the you know the aerospace industry and McDonnell Douglas and others, um, where they would, in search of innovation, typically put a, a loosely structured bunch of you know typically rebels 
in in a different building outside of the the kind of main culture and organization and you know unsurprisingly i think you know because we all understand human behavior and psychology uh, that group would often tend to produce great stuff and i think a lot of the great advances in the you know in, in, in aerospace happened that way for a while it's called skunk works because it was downstream of a kind of sewage plant uh, the, the, the the first building that they put them into and it, it kind of you know picked up that name but the uh you know the uh, the, the tech industry, you know, well-known, you know, folks like Google X and, uh, you know, Amazon has a, has a version of it, which is often meant to, you know, if the, if the organization is getting in the way of, you know, uh, being agile, if it's getting in the way of doing new things, then, then it does make sense to have this kind of loosely structured group outside of that. So uh, our version of it is, you know, you need to have some of us looking at this stuff with that outside mindset, but also the ability to prototype, the ability to prototype and learn by, you know, doing, learn by breaking things. And I think that's really where the kind of skunk works mentality is, uh, is potent for this industry. How has your work at IDEA and your visibility into the industry led to the creation of Prototype? What, what did you see as the opportunity you could address? So the, the biggest thing, so idea, you know, is a, is a strategy, you know, consultancy type practice. And we would often give, you know, path to market ideas to our clients. So they give us an asset, we show them a range of destinations and a way to connect those things. But because the, the kind of the, the stuff that sits in the middle, the stuff that's pretty well illuminated already has evidence behind it. Um, people tend to pick the one that has evidence and, you know, that feels logical. The problem is, I always use this metaphor of a kind of dark street with one street light lit. You know, everyone's comfortable under that light and, and it's easy to make decisions lit by that one bulb. Um, but when you all know that the rest of the street is there for people with torches to go exploring, we felt there's a lot of interesting ideas that are just being left for uh, because we're risk mitigating you know, in, the, in that early stage. If we adopt an opportunity-seeking mindset, um, some of those ideas become possible. And you know, the industry's got great examples of that exactly that kind of behavior. So you know, if you, know, you, you and your listeners know Symbalta, you know, Eli Lilly, you know, that could have, should have been an antidepressant. It was following Prozac to market. And um, uh, and the goal was to not cannibalize the antidepressant that uh, that had built the, the building in Indianapolis. So um, the opportunity to look at that drug in pain was an interesting one. You know, a clue existed in the world that this drug and many drugs like it would have worked in pain. But the great thing about Lilly was that they saw that they then did the studies in phase two, which were, you know, let's study pain where the patient is depressed or let's study pain where the patient isn't depressed. If you do that in phase two, then suddenly you get a great signal to, to pursue in phase three, which is, yes, we work in pain where there's no depression. And then you've got a, an opportunity that came because of the behavior, not because of the drug, um, but because of what you chose to study. And that is, um, you know, a wonderful kind of, you know, talisman for the kind of work that we think should be done more often, which is opportunity-seeking, exploratory behavior in early stage, that will lead to, you know, things that you didn't expect. You know, and um, and you know, we often use this phrase of serendipity. Most of our great blockbusters, 
you know, Avastin failed a lot of times before it even got anywhere close to a pipeline. Uh, Herceptin, you know, was repurposed from a, from a phase two failure. Uh, the statin class, you know, failed a lot of times before it ever got close to a human. Um, I think that learning by doing is 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 opportunity seeking behavior. And I don't think that our industry has done enough of that. I think that we've relied on what we would call the prediction paradigm of trying to predict, you know, before it even goes into a human exactly where it's going to end up. Uh, you know, everyone knows that you can't do that, but we behave as if we can. You've said Protodyme is not a think tank. It's not an incubator CRO or a consulting firm. Instead, it's a contract skunk works. What would a company retain Protodyme to do? And at what point in the discovery and development process would it ideally engage it? So um, our sweet spot is probably... Um, you know, phase one, where uh, that range of exploration is often beyond the, you know, it's either beyond the capacity of the of the company or beyond the capability. So, you know, we've got a universe of, um, you, know, you know, solutions to, you know, from AI through, uh, you know, translational work through, you know, novel metrics um, to, to, to throw at it. But also, you know, the variables that we like to look at are, you know, Generating options is one thing. Also, generating an evidence, uh, an evidential quality uh, assessment is important. So, what kinds of evidence are going to be useful for you to look at in the next stage? And putting, you know, for us to then put a range of, you know, different kinds of test in front of that asset is is also important. So, you know, if, if you imagine a kind of agile, nimble. Uh, you know, CRO, which is really where we're focused, this kind of next generation CRO is into doing exploratory work, but also into looking at, well, what commercial model could suit this? What regulatory opportunity might exist? Uh, if you think about, say, a product that combines an, uh, you know, a molecule, uh, novel formulation, you know, in a novel device with a, with a biomarker and a, and a digital solution, you know, most companies can't build that internally today. That's the kind of thing that we can build. We don't have to get it right the first time. We can learn by doing. And actually, the learning by doing is, is the key differentiator for what we're doing. Well, what's the range of expertise that Protodyme is able to call on? And what's the process? Does it approach every project in the same way? Is there a different process depending on the asset? Yeah, no, that, that, that's insightful. You know, we have to approach every asset uh, with a view to optimizing it and the the kind of things that we call upon so you know we, we have an ai uh, engine which generates hypotheses um you know of course that's only interesting in that it's a hypothesis it's a clue uh, but then you know it, the, we've, we've got access to a, an awful lot of different technologies for uh, you know studying uh, and generating proofs of concept and proofs of principle there um, when it comes to what a clinical study would look like, of course, there's also you know AI and machine learning solutions there. Um, but internally, we've got decision scientists, so we look at what we call the kind of geometry of decision making, which is, you know, in order to go from here to where you want to get to, uh, what kind of vantage points are useful on your opportunity. So if we're going to do this kind of opportunity seeking behavior. The key thing is to lay out with the client uh, a list of things that we would like to know. So we generate this plan to learn and then we go find out some stuff and then we come back and look at what we just found out. And then we make a decision uh, about what else to pursue. So it's a kind of staged 
uh, you know, sequential process, if you like, where typically we'll go, you know, through multiple parallel steps in the first place. But the key is to say, well, what kind of evidence is useful to know at this stage, or could we accelerate? Uh, so if you think about being a kind of client of ours, you know, at the end of say six months or a year, you'll have a range of validated options to pursue, which you couldn't get uh, by pursuing this kind of linear path that the industry's uh, pursued so far. Well, uh, expand on that. What's different about what Protodyme is doing compared to what a company does within its own walls? So um, if I, you know, I'll give you an anecdote. A few years ago, I was talking with someone in a, in a pharma company who had a, a trip V1 receptor antagonist, which is essentially heat pain um, uh, drug. And um, when I asked where it was, they said, oh, it's in proof of concept at the moment. So I said, well, okay, tell me more. Uh, and said, well, it's in an osteoarthritis proof of concept. And you know, I'm not the world's best scientist, but I said, well, are there any of those receptors in the joints? And they said, well, no. So I said, well, how will it work in osteoarthritis? He said, well, it won't. And so then the question was, well, why is it where it is? And they said, well, actually, the regulator said if we wanted a pain indication, we had to do an osteoarthritis proof of concept. Now, you know, you or I would look at the logic of that and say, um, that's nuts, right? Because that's not a proof of concept for this drug. You know, this drug needed you to look at, you know, different opportunities for a heat pain drug. And, you know, it might be burn pain. It might be, you know, who knows what but it has a specific set of opportunities that you would like to gather evidence for. And the, the linear process that companies have pursued, which is we would like this to be an osteoarthritis drug or, or, or a pain drug, which therefore, 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 um, you know, you lay out the studies and every, everyone does the same study. Um, and that's why you get attrition. That's why you have these declining productivity rates because people, you know, want to have an Alzheimer's drug and everything that they pick up is either a yes or a no for that profile. If you flip it and you look at what the drug might be, if you were to give it, you know, it's, it's, it's opportunity, you're, you behave differently. Suddenly you're, you don't know where it's going to land, but you're interested in the journey. Uh, so that, I think that's really very different. It's 180 degrees from the way the industry has behaved so far. There are many companies that explore multiple indications for experimental therapies. Hmm. What's different about the way <laughs> Protodyme is going about this? Um, there, it, it's unusual in major pharma to, to, to do that. I think that the exploration of multiple indications is often, um, I'm going to say sequential. It's rarely uh, done in parallel, and it's often done once the drug has, you know, survived phase one, phase two. I think it's unusual to be doing it at preclinical in phase one, uh, to, to set out with a kind of bunch of competing paths and to then weigh them up against each other or to see what you learn by, you know, heading down any particular path. So, you know, those companies that are doing it, you know, great, we would encourage it because I think that opportunity seeking behavior is to be encouraged. Um, but even within the indication, I mean, if you take, let's say, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, there's still an unmet need, there's still, you know, uh, symptoms, there is pathology, there is progression, there's damage, there's all kinds of opportunity within the indication. So, so I think that getting a kind of line of sight advantage point on the opportunity, you know, that this drug will have in those spaces, I think does need a, um, you know, kind of this kind of planned serendipity of, you know, doing enough exploration to find out where it's, where it's true talent might lie. I think a lot of people have long talked about making pharma more tech-like, but 
there are some differences between these industries that make this challenging. This is a highly regulated industry, one where their life cycle of moving from idea to product is measured in years rather than months. Uh, you know, I think about synthetic biology, which operates like an engineering discipline, offering some analogy to that extent. But to what extent do you think therapeutics can go through a, a rigorous and staged set of experiments and tests and be developed in this way? Um, yeah, I think the, the, the challenge of how analogous we are to tech I think it depends, right? If you're developing an app for an app store and it's a version of Candy Crush, that's one thing. But if you're developing self-driving cars, that, that's quite another. And you think about the way that say Google's gone about that or about you know Google Maps and the way that they started. You know, some of the problems were, you know, there's clearly regulatory issues there. Uh, there's safety issues. There's all kinds of, you know, commercial issues. Um, but you know, people at Google would say you've got to start by starting, and uh, you know, and also perhaps have diversity of an, of an approach. So let's not assume that we know the way how to do this. And sometimes you have to build the tools to to get it done as you're going. And um, so I think that you know there are tech uh, metaphors. I would say the nuclear power industry would be another one that uh, is probably is even more highly regulated than pharma, where you know some of these approaches are. Uh, important because I think this is where innovation comes from. Uh, so, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, for those companies that are prepared to bet on either the world is uncertain or the world is certain. And so far, pharma mostly predicts as if they're able to predict with some degree of accuracy where a drug will work and with some degree of accuracy that if it works, they, they're going to get, you know, a uh, billion dollars per year for it. We don't believe that you can do either of those things in early phase. We think that you have to set up the uh, the kind of experiments to to find out where the talent lies and for the drug and where the market might uh, might might sit. And and also as we've just seen, you know, with Biogen, um, you know, we've seen lots of companies take almost exactly the same drug through development, and only one so far has had an approval. Um, so you know, we 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 see this. You know, time and time again, and I think this this desire to be different, to differentiate, um, will have to come back to maximizing, you know, the, the the intrinsic value. And it's probably, you know, a good example would be Pixar versus Disney. You know, Pixar, um, you know, was successful with every movie that it launched, and at the time, Disney was getting about one in ten uh, as as uh, you know to be successful. So it was. You know, and this flagship has said recently they want to launch 100 drugs in 10 years. Well, even if you added up the top, the top 30, you wouldn't get that number of drugs. So um, we believe that you have to behave differently rather than just to incrementally improve some of the steps in the process. There have been a number of efforts over the years to address R&D productivity in the industry at various times. I, I want to ask you about two of those. The First is GlaxoSmithKline, which sought to make big pharma more biotech-like by breaking up R&D into small, highly focused teams that mm. operated with greater autonomy and let completed competed for funding. Any any thoughts on how that panned out? Um, yeah, I actually just finished an interview with, uh, with Dan Skowronski at Lilly, who you know Lilly came top of our index this year, the Innovation Index. And I didn't realize that they'd also done what you just described at GSK, which is, you know, you 
bringing in Loxo Oncology, and instead of making them work your way around, uh, you give them your oncology assets. And I think there's some value in that. And I think if you think about why that's true, um, if you are, let's say, an antivirals company and you've made a, you know, you've made some huge steps forward in an area like hepatitis C, and then you decide that you want to be an oncology company, well, I think the thing that you might forget is that the people at the top who are making decisions are good at antivirals. They're not necessarily good at understanding oncology. So you either feed them basic information with which to make a decision, uh, or, um, you know, which is, you know, t tends to be what happens. Um, or, and therefore, you know, you end up with, 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 with really bad decisions. Or you say, well, you know, why don't we have some people that understand oncology deeply making the decisions? And, you know, the kind of tacit information that's brought to decisions is so important for our industry. You look at the kind of golden periods that companies have had and the people who are running them, you know, deeply understood their therapeutic areas. So I think it's a really interesting hypothesis that an organization would build itself around, you know, structural, functional units. Um, you know, getting that right is not guaranteed. I don't think GSK have done that yet, but, uh, but I think with someone like Lily, you've seen the success um, of, of, the, of that model. The other is a more recent approach, although I think there's a lot of similarity that this is one that's been advocated by MIT finance theorist Andrew Lowe, who argues for a portfolio approach to drug development. And this has been embodied by companies like Bridge Bio, which he co-founded. How do you see that model addressing R&D productivity? Um, well, it really depends on your portfolio hypothesis. I think that... Uh, if your portfolio hypothesis reduces the dependency on any one asset to be successful, then you know you're you're essentially hoping that one of the portfolio will pay for the rest of the the portfolio. So it's a it's a you know, certainly a valid hypothesis, and and you know there's a lot that can be learned from decision making theory as it applies to I mean even things like gambling and other you know you know. Um, uh, you know, methods of of making decisions, you know, or chess. You know, no one sets out in a game of chess trying to predict the end game. You take steps forward. Um, I think the portfolio approach is one that we've tried a lot, and I think that the problem is that we are not working with great numbers. So, portfolio theory works best when you can predict with some degree of accuracy what the outcome is going to be. In our industry, you've got no idea. You know, because as you know, you've got biology and you've got all kinds of factors that you can't predict. And even, even if you could predict all of that, you know, we're also very bad at predicting market performance. So, um, you know, I think that if you need a kind of arithmetic mathematical model to, you know, profile your opportunities, you're going to have to put good numbers in. And I think we don't have good numbers to put in at the moment. And we often fool ourselves with you know, probabilities of success, probabilities of technical success, regulatory success, and so forth. You know, they, they always come out higher than they should because people want to keep their programs going. And as soon as we look at the real numbers, uh, it's, it gets really hard to do the kind of portfolio work that, uh, that, you, know, that you describe. And how have companies you've spoken to about prototype reacted to the idea of using the Skunk Works approach? It's been phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, we were lucky enough to have a couple of roundtables from, you know, some heads of R&D before we officially launched. And 
I guess in the spirit of the of, of the company, one of the great things was that they pointed us at things that we didn't expect that they might want us to do. So, um, uh, you know, things that we did expect were where there's capacity issues, you know, focus is often on one or two assets and they just don't have time to do the exploration that they know is valuable. Um, I mean, let's say you've got a you've got a product, you've got a lead indication, you're studying it and, you know, your heads are down doing that. Uh, you know that the life cycle is going to be important. You know that in a year or two's time, you're going to be make, making those decisions. Uh, but who's doing that early phase work on that asset? Uh, you know, many companies just have capacity bandwidth issues there. Um, so we knew that. Uh, we also knew that the kind of this this kind of combinatology world of you know building devices with you know digital solutions and biomarkers was something that most companies are too siloed. To do, we knew that, and then they gave us a bunch of other things that they said. Well, it would be great if you could work in the business development process. If you could, you know, help us with some asymmetry in the in the conversation. You know, optionality, the plan to learn is critical for when we're looking at something. Could help us differentiate things like pre-competitive opportunities uh, that they would have us do as well. So, um, I mean, you know, I think that's the spirit: is that you can't know until you start. Um, there's there's been a huge appetite in 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 you know for what we do and there was a there was a great question asked at one of those advisory meetings which is you know when when we asked someone well you've got 10,000 people why would you give something like this to us you know his response was have you ever asked 10,000 people to do anything <laughs> i thought it was such a such an interesting you know insight to how hard it is to get big companies to 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 do something small uh, or agile, uh, you know, that was a great opportunity for us to to dive into there. Given the time and cost of developing drugs, it's I think hard to characterize this industry as risk averse. You you make a distinction between good risk and bad risk. Hmm. How can a company recognize that difference and increase good risk while incre- while decreasing bad risk? Yeah, so I mean, we often talk about quality of risk in a decision and i think that uh, you know our framework option quality you know evidential quality and decision quality is 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 often areas where risk is hidden i think as i've, I've talked about how wrong most of our numbers are in early stage so you know the empv is is, is typically you know inflated and done by people that aren't good at predicting and they don't get good at predicting because they don't have to go back and you know check their own numbers so there's technical risk that gets hidden just because we don't ask hard enough questions. There's regulatory risk because we're not uh, looking for uh, you know real answers from regulators about what we might do. But I think the, the big kind of shadow on the wall is commercial risk. So we see companies launching drugs that no one seems to want all the time, you know. And uh, I think the figure that we have is there's only one in four drugs that launch that makes back its own R and D investment. Uh, never mind pays for the other failures. So that's a hidden risk. Um, but I think we prefer to look at this as instead of you know, identifying risk and mitigating it, is what are the behaviors that tend to lead to opportunity seeking? And I think if you try and minimize risk, um, you know, companies tend to talk about phase one and phase two failures as risky. Uh, but of course, you know, that's not what phase one and phase two are for. Uh, we shouldn't be talking about failure of phase one, phase two, because those are exploratory, experimental phases. So I think the quality of risk 
does matter how you take it, when you take it. I think we've seen uh, risk pushed into phase three by many companies because they haven't done enough in phase one, phase two. Um, you know, I mean, just for example, 50% of studies in phase three fail for inability to recruit or accrue patients for the studies. Um, so there's all kinds of, you know, operational and, uh, and other risks that are that, that there's just being, you know, pushed, you know, someone said kick the whale down the beach um, because the, the kind of incentives often are to throw, a, throw an asset from phase one into two or from two into three. And those toll gates, I think, uh, you know, they're, they're not always looking for, you know, the real picture. They're, they're often looking for just a small enough signal to proceed. Mike Rhea, CEO and founder of Idea Farmer and founder of Protodyme. Mike, thanks so much for your time today. Danny, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.